Hey friends, you know, this is a long, this is a long show. It's two hours, but did you know, uh, with the beauty of modern technology, you can, uh, you can do a couple things. One, you can put a sleep timer on your podcasts, uh, at least if you're in the uh, Apple, uh, Apple uh, device. Uh, you, uh, you can also uh, pause it, or you can just kind of let us fade into the background as you fall asleep or you drive and don't fall asleep and stay alert because we're having really a wonderful discussion. But friends, listen, this is a show. This is something we've been wanting to do for a little while here. We have kind of whiplashed some of you, um, and we're kind of talking about some things, and we're kind of going from zero to 60, I guess, is maybe another way of talking about the... Uh, um, the metaphor, and that is this uh, idea that uh, we're really interested in thinking through the aftermath of walking out of a uh, an uncomfortable, unhealthy religious background. If you're leaving fundamentalism, if you're leaving a cult, a, a high demand religious group, um, an ideology of some sort, but here we're really talking about fundamentalist religion and specifically fundamentalist Christianity. If you want to peek out the door and uh, and maybe just kind of take some steps out on your own, you know, it's a scary thing. And I know a lot of people who, when they when they explore new ideas, they become very, very lost and they they lament the spiritual conversations that they once had. And they kind of think they've got to go into like a cold, black and white, secular space. So for, for spiritual emancipation, we've got uh, some books for you. And, and in fact, it's not just spiritual emancipation. It's the full spectrum emancipation. This is a show in which we're going to go through 10 books for you to consider reading this summer. And you don't even have to read them. You can hear us talking about them to kind of get some of the takeaways. But we hope that you will read at least a few of them. These books that will help you to kind of process through where you've been and what's possible for the future. How do we make sense of the world? We are going to talk about evolution and Eastern spiritualities and a goddess and uh, promiscuity and uh, the evolution of the penis. Oh, friends, you know, if you're not used to this by now, I don't know uh, where you've been. Where you been, friends? But this is a show uh, we really hope that this can help you at least kind of have like a starter kit. If you've kind of found yourself in the, in the, in the rubble of your old belief system, but you don't like want to walk away from it entirely or, or you're not sure where to go, we're not telling you to follow our path, but this is just what we found helpful. Friends, boy, thanks for staying with us. We're so glad you're along for this journey. <sighs> Let's go. Well, here we are, another Portland morning. We're going to talk about books to read for the summer, but how you ladies doing? I'm doing all right. <laughs> There's Stacy. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here, right? That's yeah, good. That's, that's good. <laughs> We're ready to read. I might have I might have already mentioned this before, but um, but we've I like the concept of moving. 
you know, that, um, you know, there's a lot of times when we're in these groups and things that talk about moving forward and I'm like, no, we're just we're moving. moving. On. We're just moving. Yeah. Moving. Yeah. We're just moving though. Have you moved and, on yet? And right now <laughs> I'm, I'm no, I don't think I'll ever move on, but I will keep moving. moving. I am dedicated. And that's about what I can commit myself can to. Right? The rituals, yeah. the, the daily motions. And there is something very healing in that. Uh, Sydney, we've been rocking the garden. What yes. are you most proud of? Um, I don't even know. I love the snap peas. They're so beautiful. Had no idea and that they would just keep going. baby tomato plants. We have three kinds. We have Cherokees, early girls, and some heirloom tomatoes. And they are all just blasting off. That is one nice thing about Portland. We have not really had to water very often. We, we just yeah. let the earth do it in well, the sun. And, and it seems like just about the time when the plants need the water, then lo and behold, it rains. Yeah. So it's just the seems like the perfect yeah, amount that we need right now. Almost also grows too much. One thing I've been doing just to kind of, you know, bring some joy to the house is every couple of days I go out there and I cut out all the dahlias and I just put them in different little spots around the house. So we have um, one by our little Guanyin shrine thing that we got going on. We will come back to that at the end of the show. <laughs> we'll we're going to talk about the... Go- no, we're going to talk about it on this show. We're going to talk about the goddess Guan Yin. That is going to be the last thing we mentioned, but we are going to then uh, give you a list of possible reading materials that you might enjoy over the summer. You know, you're sitting by the beach. Uh, you could have a novel. So if you're going to be sitting by the, the poolside or, or hanging out by the river, where, whatever you do this summer, you, you want a little reading... Maybe, and this is for you, you can listen to this episode, and I hope you'll really enjoy the titles that we discuss. And so if you want to learn some things, learn some things about books that you might want to read, that's great. But this is especially geared for those folks who are uh, seeing themselves as spiritual exiles. Maybe they're coming out of a high control group, uh, a toxic religious experience, or just something that was was, uh, constraining. Then you get out of it. You blast out from that world, and there is, for a lot of people, a sense of loss, a, a sense of emptiness, a hunger for the sorts of practices. Like we were talking about gardening, but one of those practices is is just reading things and reflecting uh, what you know Christians do when they have Bible study and devotion time, right? And there is something healthy about that that. Often when people get kind of burned out from going to church, they kind of lose that aspect of um, knowing where to turn, right? And so these are not the only only things to read, but they're just things that have been helpful for us. And it's kind of like your starter pack if you're trying to say, all right, I've left fundamentalism. What are some books that'll that'll help me to kind of regain my equilibrium in the midst of that. The first two are going to be really quick because we've already talked about them. The first, of course, number one, get yourself a copy of the Tao Te Ching. And the reason is that there is a, there is a as we've talked about this before, there is a way in which it allows us to ask and answer certain questions about life and existence and things we call spirituality without appealing to revelation or authorities or, um, or anybody, yeah, right. Like the Tao might be older than the father is one of the lines, right? Like, so this is just ultimately reality. Um, and it's, it's both secular and sacred at the same time, if you can see it all. And, and the chapters are super short. So, you know, within one page, pretty much, um, you can get through 
you know, one of the chapters and, and then just have something to ponder on for the rest of the day. So, or you could read it all in one sitting Yeah. or you could start by reading it all through and then taking it slow. But let me just give you the first, you know, go back to our, our rendering of this Tao Te Ching, uh, chapter one, the Tao proclaimed as dogma is not the everlasting Tao. That's why we translated it like that. There are some, uh, I think, more beautiful translations and maybe that are closer to the original. But for our purposes in rendering the Tao Te Ching, we were doing it specifically for ourselves and for others who are in that same kind of place yeah. of recognizing that, that a lot of the thing that got in the way of the way was a lot of the chatter. Right. And I, and it's often translated the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. And that's not to say that um, we're wasting our time by trying to <laughs> even do our translation of the Tao Te Ching um, or that anybody else's is a waste of time either. Um, but I, it, mostly it's the point of that is just that no matter what words you put to it, it's never going to fully capture it. And I would say that um, with any, any spiritual book in general, if you think that one thing can actually contain everything you need to know for for something that is so big <laughs> yeah. and you know something so i don't know um that that our human understanding can't possibly capture all of what that is no matter you know that and so anyway. and, and people make fun of the Tao Te Ching for saying that you can't say anything and then he goes on to say yeah you know, that's it, the joke but you the, know. but again that it that's the point like you need multiple translations you Wrestle need commentaries mm-hmm. you need gardening it's none of these things can express the fullness of it correct and so ultimately this is the dance and we allow ourselves to then kind of flow from this um, and if you've never considered it, at least at least check it out. Let me continue with that chapter. Words cannot contain the infinite word. Inexpressible reality is the source of the heavens and the earth. The cosmos we label gives birth to every living thing. So, uh, so that's kind of a starting place. And so you can kind of give the spirit, the spirit of where we're going. Um, we are not going to be looking at books purely from, let's say, like an angry ex-evangelical perspective. We're trying to see if there's some tools in our toolbox that we could kind of bring along for the ride. Um, The second book is an obvious one, and it's just, I think, we don't need to spend too much time on it because we'll link in the show notes to a full episode we did Mm -hmm. and then an interview with uh, Emily Joy. But uh, number two, uh, hashtag church two, how purity culture upholds abuse and how to find healing. Um. I will say this, yeah. this book is not your light summer reading. No. Um, it had me in tears through most of it, but it was all very healthy. And um, I am super grateful to uh, Emily for writing it and to the connections that she made that I didn't even fully understand from my own uh, childhood church experience to sort of um, the whole way that I guess like I even thought about um sexuality and even how I dress and all sorts of different things that I didn't realize um, actually was like so connected with this particular way of thought that often comes out of uh, the the church um, and especially the evangelical or, um, you know, or the Christian church. Yeah, in, in, in America, this this kind of thing, especially now she's talking about purity culture, which was a, a unique moment, but I think it has something to do with the way in which you cannot really address the rape culture in 
American evangelicalism, what we're seeing with the Southern Baptist Convention and all these this, this horrific stories. You, you can't really have that, uh, she argues, without the, the construct of hierarchy and patriarchy. And and, right. and, and it all, like, you, you realize how connected all of this is. And, and, and I don't know, it was eye-opening for me. Like I said, um, there was somebody else we gave the book to, and they were already, you know, kind of went through the first few chapters and were already in tears, like from the yeah. first five minutes. But Sydney, would you um, just read a selection here? The reason I was hoping you might read this is because I think it was partly something that as I read it, it was helpful, I think, for us mm-hmm. to start thinking about the fact that we needed to move on to a next chapter mm-hmm. and how important that was because staying any longer would be unhealthy for ourselves and people we love. Okay. So it says, I kind of have a slight cold today, but that's fine. Reject, dismantle, and replace purity culture. That's it. Full stop, no buts. We have seen how destructive and evil purity culture is and how its consequences echo in the lives of survivors, even for generations. There is no way to hold on to any part of purity culture without simultaneously being a part of the problem. Saying that you want to heal and help survivors while upholding the parts of purity culture that you feel uncomfortable letting go of is akin to saying, I'm allergic to nuts and I'll go into anaphylactic shock if I eat them, so I'm going to stop eating walnuts, almonds, and pistachios, but the Bible says to eat hazelnuts, so those can't possibly hurt. (laughs) Oh, and my pastor told me it's important to eat cashews, so I'll still eat those. The cure is not the disease. The baby and the bathwater both must go. (laughs) But purity culture is pernicious and hard to eliminate completely. Lingering purity culture often shows up in theological claims like, I believe the Bible affirms same-sex relationships as long as they wait until marriage, just like heterosexual couples. Can you pause there for a second? Because I think this is important. Right now, this is Pride Month. And there's been a lot of violence uh, attempted. I mean, there's people gearing up for and some fortunately getting thwarted in their attempts to disrupt pride events. And there's a lot of uh, hysteria going on in right wing media um, about this idea of grooming mm. so that like LGBT activists are grooming and they're, mm. they're, re- they're changing the nature of that word. Um, but there's also something that's interesting that's going on, I think, in the increasing acceptability of um, like pride celebrations. And that is uh, something that is interesting, uh, internalized homophobia, even even amongst those who would identify as LGBTQ. And um, what I mean is, I think sometimes uh, what we're seeing is, is like if you, if you go to like a pride event and you're going to see sex positivity, there's this idea amongst people who think that they have gone from, let's say, this bigoted fundamentalist view of sexuality, and then they say, okay, I'm going to jump full into this, this other world, and they get surprised at how much overt sexuality there is and how off-putting it is, and they don't realize that often what's actually going on is even for, even for people that, that have thought that they've made this progression in their life, some of the... Um, imagery of sex positivity they still have they find shameful so it's okay to be gay but like but that kink is not okay 
Yeah, there's well, still a natural aversion to right. blocking. Right, you can be out. you can you can be you. Just don't be so public about it. Don't mm. be don't be so flamboyant about it in the public square. Mm. And I think that um, is just it's just something for us to pause on for a second because that's kind of think partly what she's saying. You 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 see especially in progressive Christianity people kind of making these moves, but they still carry with them a certain kind of puritanical vibe. Mm. They've just kind of moved the bar. Yeah, they <laughs> shifted it, but they're still not really operating with full spectrum emancipation. Sorry, keep going. No worries. Okay. Just like heterosexual couples or I think people should be able to make the sexual decisions that feel right for them whenever that is, even if they're not married. But I still believe that all romantic relationships have to be monogamous. The problem is these statements represent compromises with purity culture. Purity culture doesn't <clears throat> purity culture doesn't just operate as the singular. Disconnected ideas of sexism, homophobia, and so on. It operates as a system, and it must be dismantled as a system. If we really want to heal from the sexualized violence of purity culture and create a safer world for survivors and all marginalized groups in our communities, these half-hearted efforts will not do. Purity culture must be scrapped bit, or scraped bit by bit from our minds and hearts until there is nothing left of it. And the words of the Apostle Paul make no provision. Romans thirteen fourteen. Let it go completely. Is that the end of the? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, like, oh so, um, so, I mean, I think that's something that we're looking at in this whole uh, season. Is the, she not monogamous? Uh, well, I think she's, I think the, the normativity of it, okay. you know, regardless of, of where she's at, I think, um, you know, I really appreciate, I think what I was trying to do with, with my book and I, I, I really do someday want to kind of go back to it and then, then look at some retractions, mm. very significant retractions, but kind of even where we were going at, uh, at that moment was kind of monogamy as kink mm. in the sense that monogamy is something you choose if you want to, because this is the thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and as an expression, as your art or whatever, I mean, like, you know, a, a, a monk going into spiritual retreat and becoming essentially asexual is perfectly acceptable as a kink. If that's what you want to do. The problem is when the Pope says you got to do that. Like that was something that got added on to the thing, you know? Well, um, the other th I mean, the other thing I also, um, really appreciate with church, too, and just in, just in general with um, when you talk about like monogamy or not, um, is the idea of consent and how much, um, you know, consent matters. And, I, and it's not really something that definitely isn't taught. Um, it wasn't taught to me growing up. It wasn't taught to me in the churches or anything. And I think that um, by not understanding all of what consent entails and like in, in making that like that's 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 how you have safety in any of your sexual relationships or any of your relationships in general and um i think it's just something that we i don't know we uh, we don't teach our kids enough and maybe it's getting better now um but but all that that's important about um, fully understanding what consent is and asking for it and giving it, you know, and in any of these relationships that you're in so that the line is less blurred into right. potential taking advantage, you know, rape, 
even molestation and things like that, where certain lines just gradually kind of get crossed. And then um, you don't really know exactly how it happened. But before you know it, there's maybe some sort of sexual act going on that you never really wanted to be a part of. And, you know, and I, I just think that. Well, the sleepovers is weird. Mm-hmm. Well, even, um, you know, because you talk about from a religious standpoint, but even just in society, mm-hmm. like people that grew up in non-religious households are still not taught that. Yeah. It's just kind of like a complete lack of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, sleepovers is a huge thing. I remember having sleepovers with like people's dads that were kind of weird. And, you know, sometimes it's not always outright molestation. It's just kind of like, oh, the, the dad that always comes over and tickles everyone. Yeah. And then does a laugh and, and like hugs you weird and mm-hmm. runs away or whatever, right, you know, right. just subtle Moments like that and then being a child and not knowing how to like stick up for yourself or create boundaries. I mm-hmm. think you internalize that for like the rest of your life yeah. as an adult. Yeah. But. And yeah, I don't want to pick on religion, but I think there, the one thing is that there was a place where you were supposed to let your guard down. So like in my case, like there was nothing funky. Like I, you I don't can believe. always trust a pastor. Right. But I found myself like I was, I remember one time, this was nothing, nothing against my particular youth pastor, but I was sleeping in a bed with my youth pastor on a trip to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Like I don't uh. think I would ever find myself in that state again. Yeah. Um, it but, was because we were like, you know, there was like four dudes we're sharing rooms. There was like eight of us total or 12 of us going up the coast. And, and maybe that's something that athletes do or whatever, but it's like, I wasn't something that I would expect I to would do. I say that doesn't seem appropriate. It just doesn't feel Not today. Like maybe, you yeah. know, well, and so you say that you don't really remember. I mean, I don't know. A lot of times the fun thing that the males did to each other were titty twisters and you have permanent nipple damage from these titty uh, twisters. I just yeah. think, I think that like youth leaders would twist my nipples until they like had like internal okay. bruising. Right. And, and I mean, maybe that doesn't happen. It felt like it, it didn't feel good. They would also just whack my balls. So That's I'm saying okay. there's these lines that are crossed. As they told homophobic jokes. Yeah. They would there, whack my balls. Yeah. There's these lines that are crossed wow. that to where, like, at what point. <laughs> and my, you know, like, I don't even you, consider mine like a real. traumatic situation. <laughs> like, I'm just like, That's just what, that, that what happens. And like, so. Even like, verbalizing it, you're like. <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm like, wait, are, are we all okay? No, it's just what you do, you know, it's like jock. You know, youth group. I mean, the thing with Orange County Youth Group was it was so caught up in jock Orange County culture. Yeah. So sometimes it was like soccer team, like soccer team, dude puts his package on your head while you're sitting on the couch. Like, I do know that so that happens. Weird. Not religious at all, just the soccer team. So when that becomes the predominant, like, kind of sports culture that was with you know have anyway. you guys talked about butts up ever well we butts up we have or, no it was, it was <laughs> no. buck 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 no but buck we buck have. was oh. different what were you saying about butts up oh shit okay this was actually um something that happened to me in the public education system so we had these um two teachers PE teachers and there was rumors that they were both a couple mm-hmm. two guys and um, they had us play this game in PE where everyone would have to, like, squat. And then when someone runs past you, you stick your butt into the air and you go, butts up. And so it was something that, I mean, no one really that's liked a different, this game. Yeah, that's a different butts <laughs> yeah. up from the that one I remember. fourth grade yeah. in um, Laguna Niguel. Who lets anybody out <laughs> the door? <laughs> yeah, the butts up that we, 
I knew of is like where what a ball is going to get thrown to the. You throw the ball against the wall. The wall, and you have to be able and run up and touch. Well, the, if you the you wall catch before. the ball, but if you drop the ball, then you've got to run to the wall before somebody catches the ball and throws the ball to the wall. Or throws it at you. Or right? throws it at you, which is always fun. <laughs> Otherwise, you have, to put your, you have to put your hands on the wall and your butt out, and then people get to throw the ball as hard as they can at your butt. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I grew up in a school where that was not enough juice, so we played a game <laughs> called Suicide. If you drop the ball, people beat the crap out of you oh. until you made it to the wall. One kid broke his hand on my back wow. because That's he fortunately crazy. punched me right on my spine and... and uh, you know, the spine is a very nice <laughs> geometric shape Natural for protection. <laughs> and this dude just shattered his hand. He comes to school. He wants to beat me up with his cast for hurting him. Oh, what gosh. The I mean, that is, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Anyway, yeah. So, Different times, I so, guess. But, but um, uh, yeah, so fortunately, you know, it's like that game I, I don't think is anything that my kids ever ran into. Here we go. The next book, number three, is uh, Micah Bournet, Here Comes This Dreamer, a book of poetry. And I don't think we've talked about it on the show, and I really want to uh, make sure that we mention it to folks. And one, one of the things with uh, Micah is fight evil with poetry. That's right. You know, sort of his And whole... he introduced us to Emily Joy, by the yes, way, a long time yes. ago. Um, and I don't know, like just the two of them have been really uh, inspirational for us. But the thing is, we were kind of looking for what's a good book to kind of deal with the the, the kind of problems in America related to race, okay? Um, and um, I think what's really helpful with Micah is um, instead of having somebody tell you concepts, I think this is what's hard for like white evangelicals. Like they hear these things and they hear critical race theory and they hear like some other Marxist worldview or something, like get, get, get off of that. Let's just, let's just try to understand what's going on. Um, there's some heavy stuff in here, and I highly recommend it, but it's, it's, it's worth kind of pondering on your own. I'm just going to read one, if I may, just to kind of give people uh, a concept of it. Um, this is There Goes the Neighborhood. I remember, um, you know, this is, this is about somewhere in Long Beach, and that was like one of the first times I realized, like, that there was, the, I remember we were at a place, I'm not going to name it, in Long Beach, and we realized we were at a racist place. Mm, mm -hmm. And I had never really, like, I didn't really realize that about Orange County. Mm -hmm. Like when I was growing up, I mean, like, I knew that everybody was kind of inherently like right. biased and racist, but there was like actually kind of white nationalist shit in Orange County, and when you like, start, especially yeah. North County. And then you start to see the patterns of all of that goes along with that. And often the objectification of women in some form. Yes. It's in know? the same space. Yes. So the racist space is also a place you don't necessarily want to be a lady. Often. Right. That's well, like you I... could be like, oh, let's go to Huntington Beach and have a good time. And yeah. then all of a sudden here, like, whoa. <laughs> I'm going to be reading a poem titled There Goes the Neighborhood from my book, Here Comes This Dreamer. Babe's Kitchen is one of those classic diners frozen in nostalgia. It feels like black and white television. It feels like a time before my time, yet somehow too familiar. All of the employees are related. All of the employees are senior citizens. A real American family business. A pillar of the community feeding the blue collars of Long Beach long before Snoop Dogg. Long before the city changed. Somebody's grandfather came to take our order. 
He looked me up and down and asked, Did you register when you moved into the neighborhood? I couldn't decide if he was a cold racist asking a racist question or a friendly racist telling a racist joke. Either way, I was not amused. But I laughed. As the awkward chuckle passed through my lips, it tasted like the Eucharist, like blood in my mouth. My stomach churned as I imagined it would if I ate human flesh. I felt like Judas, like Christ, betraying myself, then hanging in silence as I'm crucified. I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to stand up and list off my credentials in words with more syllables than his simple mind could take. I wanted to prove him right. I wanted to stand up and fire off hyphenated profanities, inventing new conjugations for four-letter words like the dumbest nigga he done ever heard. I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to leave and come back with the black elite, a fleet of the sharpest, darkest intellectuals he's ever seen, leaving tips large enough to buy out this business twice over. I wanted to prove him right. I wanted to leave and come back with thugs and hood rats with chains, guns, and bats, burn this place to ash. But what did I do? I laughed, then sat there silently, then ran home and wrote poetry, then screamed it out like I'm not a coward, like I didn't cry in front of my computer screen, like I wasn't waiting for my two white friends to speak up for me, like I stood up for myself, like I did something, like I fought a revolution, like it wasn't Funny, like I didn't laugh. But I did. And it tasted like the Eucharist. Like blood in my mouth. And I swallowed it. You know, there's a lot of poems like that where you kind of get into, you know, get into where he's coming from. And uh, it's heavy stuff, but it's, uh, it's fighting evil with poetry. Number four, this is now, uh, this, uh, you think, this is controversial for us in a weird way. Richard, Richard Rohr, The Universal Christ, is not really controversial. What I mean is, for a lot of people coming out of uh, fundamentalist Christianity, and I've, I've known this directly, people have said, hey, Mallinson, what should I read? What should I be looking into? Uh, do you have any advice? And often, um, if somebody comes from a Christian background and... They still, that's really important to them still. I invite them to look into the alternative orthodoxy in the, in the tradition of St. Francis of Assisi um, and the Franciscans. Um, and I think the reason it's important for people to consider Richard Rohr, the universal Christ, isn't to try to salvage anything, but to say, just like there's different kinds of Buddhism and different kinds of Hinduism, and some of it's really goofy, and some of it's 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 uh, uh, superstitious. Sometimes it's fraudulent, you know, with gurus and stuff. But then there's some stuff that's really powerful that we can draw from. And I think that even if you never have been a part of the Christian conversation or a Christian conversation, what's nice about reading Richard Rohr is 
you can kind of put him, uh, you can put Christianity or the, the teachings of Jesus into dialogue with other world wisdoms, the Tao Te Ching, the Dalai Lama, Buddhism, Sufis, whatever. And like, you're just kind of engaging in that, in that space. The thing that's interesting about, um, uh, the Franciscans is, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, um, really kind of reminds me a lot of, um, uh, the Buddha, because this Siddhartha Gautama, uh, you know, the, the, the Buddha, we call him the, the Buddha, um, he was a prince and his dad didn't want him to go outside and see all the suffering in the world. And then he did go outside and he saw the suffering in the world and he renounced his princeliness. This is, this is the problem with all spiritual liberation. People respond to it. You know, like this is what Ram Das was one times, uh, uh, trying to figure out what went wrong. He was reflecting in the 90s about the, the, the 60s. And in the 60s, there were people who thought truth and love was going to be so powerful. Mm. It was going to be so compelling that everybody would just drop the bullshit that they were doing and they would jump on the love mm-hmm. train and then the world would be healed. And what happened, this is what he said, is what we're experiencing now is still people's freaking out about spiritual anarchy. Like they got to the precipice of sexual liberation, uh, the, the, the removal of hierarchies, like just letting go of the system, and it scared them. Their free, people's freedom and love, it just scared them so much that they retreated and ran to, to hardcore right-wing stuff. And um, I don't think that's the last part of the story. No, it won't be. I don't believe it is. Now, we might all be doomed. And we can got to be okay with this, but we're not, we, we have a moral obligation to believe with, with sometimes Sydney. Like you'll say, I, I get really down and you'll say, no, but the young, the kids aren't, the kids aren't having it. Well, yeah. I mean, I seem to think that it's becoming more and more common for young people to be either kind of agnostic or atheist or coexist, but less and less people are kind of buying into what religion tells you. I think because of how chaotic the whole world is too, that everyone's just kind of done. And then the more fanatical people are kind of, you know, getting older and moving on. So things are just kind of changing. Like they're in this, like the death throes of their old system. And so that's why they're doubling down. I mean, that's why I think it is so strange to me, but it's not strange that there's so much transphobia in the, in the political thing because of the reaction. Almost every new person that I've met in Portland that I have a conversation with is saying that they grew up very religious, whether it's Catholic or Christian or whatever it is, and they completely are not religious at all, or they have moved into a space of being more into spirituality, maybe psychedelics, but most people that I meet are not doing the same religion as their parents. They're just not having it. And especially when you look at, it's not working. Whatever they were doing isn't working. You have, I mean, how do you have so many cases of molestation and rape and all these things that are coming out? It's not working. It's not working. And people are sad just generally for, you know, like just, just hearing, yeah. If it worked, People would be way more like, hey, there's some answers there. There's something. And somehow we've messed all of that up to a point where it 
it's actually become unhealthy. (laughs) And so instead of bringing us more health, it has actually been, and then then the kids can see the unhealthiness. Now, what if, and this is the key, what if what Richard Rohr is talking about is something that even those kids could really get into, not because they need to then get sucked back into institutionalized religion. I mean, but because there's something there and the something there is Again, going back to Francis of Assisi, St. Francis is a dude who, he loves the animals. <laughs> he's sitting there and he, he says, no, dad, I'm not going to be part of this. And he walks away from it. And what people don't realize is Francis of Assisi got really sick because he lived with leopards. Like he was, the, he was this prince and everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. Like Francis of Assisi statues in your, in your garden. This dude... When I think about it, it kind of makes me a little scared, okay? Because we're now at the precipice. I just got, today as I'm recording this, I got my last paycheck for a while. Fortunately, I got it times two because it's, you know, last paycheck. Um, But I'm thinking like that um, Francis of Assisi was a saint, but his body got beat up Mm. because he ran out of like nutrients and, and he was hanging out with like dysentery and he like lost his eyesight and the church hated him. And then, and then he got all these people together, but then they started doing their infighting and they became a religion. Mm. You know, the Franciscans, he like, he had to leave the Franciscans cause they got out of hand. But Richard Rohr is in that tradition. And I, the only reason I wanted to include it in this list is because th- this is why we would say, like I would say, um, Lao Tzu for my own like balance, but for the sake of the world, Jesus, because Jesus is the, the teacher that is active. Uh, and I think we have an obligation to be active to bringing down the powers creatively to subverting them mm-hmm. and then creating a new small K kingdom of love. Mm-hmm. still trying to do it. So this is a, uh, this is a quote from Richard Rohr and the uh, universal Christ is the title. Too often we have substituted the messenger for the message. As a result, we spent a great deal of time worshiping the messenger and trying to get other people to do the same. Too often this obsession became a pious substitute for actually following what he taught. And he did ask us several times to follow him and never once to worship him. And then it continues, Jesus stood as a fully innocent one who was condemned by the highest authorities of both church and state, Rome and Jerusalem, an act that should create healthy suspicion about how wrong even the highest powers can be. Maybe power still does not want us to see this, and that's why we concentrate so much on the private sins of the flesh. The denied sins that are really that are really destroying the world are much more the sins that we often admire and fully accept in our public figures. Pride, ambition, greed, gluttony, false witness, legitimated killing, vanity, etc. That is hard to deny. And then one other final quote. Controlling people try to control people, and they do the same with God. But loving anything always means a certain giving up of control. You tend to create a God who is just like you, whereas it was supposed to be the other way around. Yeah, so I, we do. We create God in our own image. So if Christianity is the force that's keeping you in prison and you want to use the language of leaving Christianity, then that's, that, that's the way to go. If you want to keep that, 
I recommend looking at it from the lens of uh, the, the Universal Christ. I think it's a very, a very helpful book. Now, jumping out of that, number four, Jerry Coyne, Why Evolution is True. Now, the reason I want to throw this in is I realize that everything that, that is connected, and again, I'm dealing with like the kind of the fundamentalist mindset. Everything that's connected starts with the uh, dismantling of actual knowledge and education. So you get rid of science, and flowing from that is you deny sexuality, you deny mental health care, you deny uh, our uh, kind of like understanding of our own nature and so forth. And we never really talk about it in America because it's so polarizing. Even when uh, uh, evolution is assumed, people ra- rarely get taught like w- what it's really about. Like they kind of brush past one, it because they don't want to cause trouble. I mean, one of the biggest mysteries right now that I'm trying to figure out is um, being perimenopausal and like and, and menopause in yeah, general. No one talks about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's hormones and biology and all these things. But there's like instead... You know, women my age or older or whatever get classified as like crazy or losing their mind. Right. <laughs> you know, like they're yeah. impossible to be around. And the generations or, before you just think that's so shameful and obscene to even bring up that, you know, they're not passing on knowledge to their daughters and granddaughters. And and again, there's so I think that there's there's not enough really known even about it. I mean, there's, it is strange how little we're starting to get more information and with the internet, (laughs) it helps. But I mean, you started doing some research. Well, do you want to, speaking of the sad thing about evolution, uh, cause I want to tell you, I want to say evolution friends is, is a fact. I mean, like it's, like it's a, it's as close. This Uh is the, the the explanatory power of evolution. But I want to, I want to pause on this to say Darwinianism is a problem. Mm. Darwinianism is what led, and, and a false kind of Darwinianism that said um, that the powerful should extinguish the the weak. Mm. And one of the things that is important about uh, isn't that what we always do, the powerful. Well, that maybe, but this is the key. So what, th- that's one of the narratives. But one of the things that's interesting about the anarchist tradition, like P- Peter Kropotkin, where he talks about. Uh, mutual aid. What he shows is that in various species, actually, it's it's the cooperation that actually helps us survive. Well, so, and, as, I, and I fully yeah. agree that that's the answer. But I'm saying that and I think we've adopted that that definite model of right. the power the culturally, the power or, you know, basically yeah. Yeah. enslave the the weaker. Right. The so and, and we, we call it social whatever. Darwinism. I mean, originally Darwinism appealed to the. Um, uh, to the capitalists mm-hmm. because it, it allowed them to have uh, nature. Essentially nature is giving them a permi- permission to allow people to have uh, to starvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's what nature they can does. make all the money right. and they, you know, they just which, happen, which would be unheard of in hunter gatherer society. Right. Like the worst right. thing you could do in hunter gatherer society is hide your food. Uh, the, the, the bonobo chimps. We'll get to this in a sec. But so, so, but evolution is a reality, but it's also something that we need to kind of grapple with, mm-hmm. right? And so, in one of those ways is is the economic system, right? I like think how how that works. Um, but here's one quote from it: uh, "To to many, evolution gnaws at their sense of self. If evolution offers a lesson, it seems to be that we're not only related to other creatures, but like them." 
are also the product of blind and impersonal evolutionary forces. Let me pause here for a second. So this is why I'm saying it's sad. Evolution doesn't care about you once you're done breeding. Oh, I see. And neither do conservative Christians. Right. Okay, in a certain do you see what I'm saying? And so like Or society in general. Or society in general. I mean because we are so programmed by evolution. You see what I'm saying? Even Christian fundamentalists are programmed by evolution in a certain sense, maybe to be this way. And the thing is so so Well um, and I I will say that definitely our our capitalist society, there's really no place for those that are are older. Um, and they put all the value of women based on appearance or looks or whatever. And so it's kind of like. I'm talking about old people in general, too. Yeah. Or ma- even males. Like, yeah. you know, at a happens. certain point, you know, younger guys come come along and become the silverback gorillas and take, you know, and then and, and our old people just get swept off to the side. Kind of pushed yeah. they're not, aside. Yeah. They're not really respected for any wisdom that they might have to offer, you know, because they're. What do they know? Times have changed and they're older, you mm. know, and, and I think it's sad. I mean, and there are definitely the some closed mindedness too that probably, you know, blocks off some of the conversation. And then it's like, because they can't connect with each other, they just kind of do their own thing. You know, I don't know. If that that is. No, I think what Sydney's saying is kind of interesting, too, like because maybe if those generations were, you know, growing up and they were talking to their kids about sex and, and culture and life and mm. not just being like, read the Bible. Then when they were older, they'd be like, hey, let's have a conversation or how are you doing today? Or, you know, so it's it's definitely I mean, it's somewhere in between. It's not one way or the other. But I think what you're saying is very sad. important because a lot of us have had to protect ourselves with boundaries from family members, you know, like, you know, uh, that are, that are kind of yeah. in your space. I love um, my grandma, yeah. but you know, I have to have like a boundary between her and I, right. Yeah. But cap- a capitalist society doesn't really have much use because for... Because of lack of productivity. Yeah. Well, and even I think um, there's something to, you know, the idea when you're past the age of being able to work, mm-hmm. yeah. like the That's capitalist right. society yeah. kind yes. of devalues you. That's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. And, and so you can't breed, you can't, you can't work. Right. Now, one thing is interesting, it, you can, I, I don't think this is terribly helpful just to look to evolution. I think there's something more transcendent. But uh, one of the interesting things there, and I'm not sure if Jerry Coyne brings this one up in this book, but there is this um, phenomenon where orcas, there is a strange way in which the women, uh, the, the female orcas become grandmas and they live extra long without being um, sexually uh, uh, fertile. Mm. Huh. As, and this is only like on the higher mammals, mm-hmm. as the like the old wise like witch basically of the scene like of, awesome. of, the, of the priestess of the of the scene and uh, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing because then who else is going to carry on like that wisdom and it's interesting that they have that kind of honoring culture when they're wild animals they have no yeah. reason to value um you know, like an elder in their culture, unless they are kind of thinking like people yeah, intelligently. Weird. So that's weird. But, uh, but no, so like, but this and is why evolution doesn't care about you when you're older. There is, once you, once you physically stop reproducing, then all of the things that happen to you in your body after that cannot be really fixed by natural processes. What I mean is when you're a baby, we have got all of these natural, uh, 
protections against pathogens. Mm. And when you're 65, your body starts being susceptible to those things Mm -hmm. because there is nothing in our genetics that could even possibly be fixed by anything that would happen after you give birth. The whole point of natural selection is you have to procreate Mm. and you have to pass on this genetic material. So if there's genes that are going to help you adapt to malaria or not, those will be there. But anything that happens after menopause cannot be fixed. As well as there's what limited resources. So you kind of need to have a section of society sort of pass on, right? So that Mm -hmm. we're not continuing to feed or, you know, I'm just saying, I think that the evolution would, would say that, right? Like, yes. uh, Other than like the orcas, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that it's just a very basic function. Our bodies are, 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 every species can get better until the age in which it stops Procreate. procreating because then there's no like function to say, oh, this is more survivable or less survivable, right? It's, it's just like just function. It's just natural. And it's obvious. I mean, so obvious with women and less obvious with men because men can still be fathers way later. So this book, though, Jerry Coyne, he's usually going to talk about the science behind it. But here, this quote, he's going back to it. Uh, th- there's, a, there's an existential thing that happens. It's very upsetting to learn about evolution. One is you realize that you and this cat that's sitting on Stacy's lap have some deep connection. That there, There's really not that much difference between us. Yeah. And then you start to realize, oh... So like there's a mystical value to that. Oh, I'm one with the cat, but then also I've lost my my ego. Oh, I see. Yeah. So like you could go it, on a Zen meditation yeah. retreat. You could you could take a bunch of mushrooms. There's a lot you could you could do some Sufi dance. You could find a way to lose your ego for a second or stand aside from your ego. One of the ways to stand aside from your ego is read the geological record and the biological record and realize you are part of this vast stream of entities that have come and gone. I mean, like just the ages and ages, you go back 20,000 years, people are having the same thoughts we're having right now, basically sitting around by a fire. And that's just hard to get 30,000 years ago, 50,000 years. So how many sorrows and joys have passed on between those things? It's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to conceive. And so it, and to me, it is a spiritually helpful task to go through and, and read through that. My gosh, I saw this picture of a baby hummingbird the other day, Aww. and it was this lady was holding it in her hand, and she had a raspberry next to it. The baby hummingbird was smaller than the raspberry. Aww. I thought it was so Aww. crazy. So that was so cool. I'll find it I've for never you. seen a baby humming, hummingbird. They always look so little. Oh, right. At the end of the show, I will try to remember to put on a, uh, a little bit of the song uh, Hummingbird by, um, uh, by look at this. Bonnie Prince Billy. What's his name? Oh. Will Oldham? <laughs> That's so cute. Bonnie Prince Billy. Isn't okay, yeah, Hummingbird. I gotta, I gotta play this on. Okay, so uh, the next book on the list, though, is uh, number five, Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha. And uh, the oh, full title is. That's funny. I bought my own copy of it. Did that. you just get this? I bought it at Shebop, like when <laughs> I went to my time massage. <laughs> well, um, loan it to Stacy when you're done because I. <laughs> well, we, we have we, it and we have we it on audio. to it on Audible. Uh, Sex at Dawn, how we mate, why we stray, and what it means for modern relationships. Now, what's important about this is this really kind of started me down the path of uh, kind of understanding how all of this kind of is woven together um, when I was working on the book Sexy. So I was reading that 
I was reading Sex at Dawn to kind of understand this. And in fact, it was it was actually reading Sex at Dawn that got me into trouble with the university. Some people were kind of complaining. And 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 uh, dear listener, please uh, let me uh, invite you into this uncomfortable space. One of the claims in Sex at Dawn is that the um, the the way that human beings uh, kind of compete is within the female body. Uh, what I mean by this is, you know, you sometimes think about there'll be like an elk and then the big elk fights the other elk and then the beta elk has to run away and then the alpha elk has the harem of all the women elk and then it impregnates the women elk and then it's like in charge, right? But with human beings, something very different takes place, which is um, it was seems to be helpful for the formation of our society for there to be promiscuity. Uh, that it's not just that, well, we're all like these ravenous animals and we're like got like food and lust and all this, but rather every other animal is either in heat or not, right? Mm -hmm. There is something really helpful about not knowing when a female human is in heat. Well, and also just having diversity decreases the chances of diseases and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like just being able to have. Well, and if we if we lived as a community, right? You'd yes. want everybody helping to take care of the baby. This is this is the key. So for whatever reason, if if first of all, so the t- couple things that are important. If you go to like to like baboons, you see, you can physically see on the butts of a female baboon that it is time for her to, to procreate. Mm-hmm. That never happens to female women. And the reason this, this book kind of brings out some of this evolutionary uh, speculation related to, to the human development is that um, that's good. Because if you, because if you, if you were, especially if you were like, say, a female of the species, if you're not, you're not needed, if you're not, see, this, see how this works? Yeah. We, we were talking about how like, oh, you're not, you're not a breeder anymore. Well, you never know. Yeah. So that there's always that bonding that can happen. It's not just sometimes, but there's, there, there's that sexual bonding within the community that goes throughout the, the, the year, the month. And also because of promiscuity, there's this belief in hunter, many hunter gatherer societies that the, the mother is actually bringing the genetic material. They wouldn't use the term genetic, but this, the semen from multiple men so that they're all the fathers of this child. So this child doesn't have no father has like the village Right, and, and they the don't un- see it as just one person's child. They all take care of them equally. Or- now, in our society, you might say, oh, monogamy is just, like, the only way to prevent, like, all these catastrophes and, you know, all this. But in a certain time, in for the majority of human evolution, it was advantageous for us to be promiscuous. That's the, that's the thesis. And that the way that we fought, we didn't fight each other by being necessarily the, the most powerful. We're kind of more like bonobos in the sense uh, that uh, sexuality um, kind of pacified things. It kind of made us more kind to each other mm. instead of um, cruel. Yeah. And, um, but here's the key. And this is the thing that got me in trouble. The male penis is basically made to be a plunger to it's, it's to extract the semen from somebody else and replace it with your semen. That's the deal. 
Okay. Now why this matters, and I think why it was so upsetting to the classes, I was just kind of, I wasn't saying it was necessarily true. I was just bringing out the research in, a, in an ethics class. The question is, does our biology determine our ethics? So, so the first question is, is it the case that God made us for monogamy? Well, my penis says no. <laughs> the physical structure of the penis says, no, you are not physically designed for monogamy. You also are not physically designed for abstinence because you can get higher rates of testicular cancer if you do not ejaculate enough. Mm. So like at a very basic level, God designed us to be promiscuous. If, yeah. if we're going to this say fall. nature, right, is what's right now. So that's, that's, that's where that goes. And I think that's a, it's a really important book, I think, for us to just kind of reframe how we think about sexuality because he's not saying that promiscuity is right. He's just explaining, or the, the authors are explaining why it's natural, okay? But then this takes me to a really important book, number six, Robert Wright, Why Buddhism is True. And this is a book about Western secular Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, where you're noticing your thoughts and kind of, um, it's almost like a cognitive behavioral therapy type of thing, as opposed to belief in spirits and reincarnation and, and all of that, right? Very, very helpful book by a dude who is a psychology, you know, professor from Princeton, and he makes a lot of sense of these connections. And I, I, I'm worried about this, dear listener. You're saying, oh, now the Mallinsons are saying, hey, here's, here's like a new religion for you. No. I am helping us to say that there are these spiritual tools we can gather. We can gather it from Richard Rohr through Jesus and St. Francis. We can gather it through uh, Robert Wright on Buddhism. But here's the thing I found really interesting about that book. Yeah, I'll leave it to the listener to just kind of go through the whole thing. He talks about how there is a devil, there is a devil in Buddhism, and the devil's name is Mara. And Mara, okay, so Buddha is, he, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree, and right before he receives enlightenment, all of these terrifying things come into his mind, right? Like just all of the horrors, I mean, I feel this all the time, some, you know, like just this kind of, your, your thoughts start spiraling, your grief, your pain, your sadness, your regrets, the woes, your anxieties, what am I gonna do to pay the rent, blah, 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 all this stuff. Ah, no, I'm stressed. Ah. Exactly. So the, so the Buddha has to kind of meditate and stare at it, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if you use this symbolically, uh, what, what Robert Wright says is the devil or Mara, this tempter, this, this force that is making us kind of worse people mm -hmm. and anxious people and angry people is evolution. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. So I, I said, okay, evolution is real. It affects our sexuality. There may be a way for us to transcend our, our sexual proclivities. Maybe we lean into them with sex positivity, but like, that's a, that's a, that's a thing that now by reading sex at dawn, you can at least take reins of your life and say like, well, what do I want to do with this? As opposed yeah. to just having it just kind of like uh, happen to you. But, but then with Robert Wright, he says that there's so much of our life that is affected by evolution and it's very bad. So an example, uh, 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 not bad, not even good or bad, but unhelpful. Yeah. So we have evolved to be paranoid 
because we evolved in a world where there was like a leopard going to jump out. Yeah, you're afraid of spiders because that could kill you. Uh, but now we're living in this constant anxiety that well, we don't need. And I think that, I mean, and so the world or those in power also know that they can control by people by fear, right? And so using fear, and it's already, I guess, Naturally natural there. there in us. Yes. Uh, he said as well when I was listening um, that there was a time when he started to feel extremely anxious. And so then he just stopped and stared at his anxiousness, you know, and just like, huh, you know, almost like, and then it got to the point where he's sort of observing it, observing yes. his anxiousness and his fear. And then when he started observing it and just like not judging it, but just like, huh, then it started to kind of go away a little bit. Hmm. And then eventually it went completely away. But we run from it, you know, we like, oh, I'm, I'm anxious or whatever. Or you want to push the stressful thought to the back of your head. Or maybe, you know, like, and you know, sometimes maybe it's like, you know, you try to, I don't know, take a Xanax or something and hope that it goes, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not putting down medication. Yeah. I am saying though, that our, um, we sometimes will put band-aids on yeah. our anxieties and our fears yeah. and we don't look at them. That's what know? I kind of was trying to do yesterday. I was like, I am not going to drink. And I am going to just sit in meditation. And as every intense feeling comes my way, I'm just going to stare it in the face like the Buddha stared at Mara. I can't tell the full story, but like, you know, Stacy, like kind of ended on a, a kind of a sad night. Well, there was someone that passed away and it was the day of the funeral. And so, you know, we had friends and family who were upset and dealing with the various emotions. So definitely... Heavy day for us. There was yesterday. that. Um, my my mom's not doing well, so I had to come to terms with you know yeah. like that. This is that final process I think for my mom, and what all those emotions are. There's somebody very close to us that is somebody I love that is separated from his family because of the injustice of borders. With no hope of. With no hope of ever seeing his kids again, and I wrote to him this morning and I said I think your pain is worse than mine. Because you are just stuck in this longing that there is somebody on the other side of the world, but because of these goddamn states, the bigotry of the United States system and borders and, and our bristling at, at foreigners. And then meanwhile, like there are countries where people won't let you leave and then we won't let you in. Yeah. What kind of hellscape is that? You know? Yeah. So that was really bumming me up. But the main thing is, facing it instead of medicating over it. It was hard, but I feel like, I don't know, I'm just, I got through it. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's always, I think sometimes I think when you talk about like the Xanax, I think there are times when it's really helpful to be able to have some way to kind of process through that. Um, I'm going to take a pause here because somebody is, uh, somebody here is coming to the, so we had, uh, we had a, a person come to buy the uh, tailgate. Got yes. a little distracted. Got a little distracted there. So I forgot where, where I was at. In any case, Staring down those anxieties, facing the natural responses in our body. Okay, this is actually a good one. Make it a little bit easier. Everybody knows this. It was helpful for us for tens and tens of thousands of years to have taste buds that could detect sweet, salt, and fat. And so it is very smart for us to, whenever we're in the wild... Bitter, right? No, no, no. I mean, yeah, bitter so that you don't... Right, no. Poison. Yes, you don't want to taste it. But I'm saying but the, we, we have this like kind of 
our brains are wired to like just desperately want to have that sweet thing gotcha. and not be happy once we've eaten it. So you, you eat the sweet thing yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not satisfying because it is, you need to keep running and get more sweet. Right. Otherwise, uh, yeah. So he, and he talks about in the book where, say, you got a donut, right? Yeah. And and you are thinking about having this donut, and you're like almost like you salivate as you're thinking about it, and right to the moment, the biggest height of the pleasure is right before you're gonna bite into it. Yeah. And the second when you bite into it, it's kind of like uh, the joy's it, a little bit gone. It, it is. It's like cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Like as soon as I'm halfway at the point of a cigarette, all of a sudden it's like. Well, I wish I had a new one. Yeah, but even <laughs> then, you know, it's not really. It's not going to help, yeah. right? And so it, that quest of kind of always wanting, and then you might be planning for the next one, you know, whether it's the <laughs> cigarette or the donut or whatever, you know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting how much, like, that moment right before you're going to get that gratification is more powerful yeah. in your body, right? So mindfulness helps us to be aware of these things and not to judge them. Mm-hmm. So you want to eat or not eat, you can at least make those decisions. What do you feel? So we talk about on the show, think what you think you should think, feel what you feel. But that doesn't mean that you should always do what you feel in the sense that sometimes what you feel is, is unhelpful for you. You feel like you want to keep pushing that stimulation button of the cigarette, but that's not getting you anywhere. Right. You know what I'm saying? As well as, yeah, I think that... Um, <laughs> I don't know. And this is, sorry, this is kind of a tangent, I guess, but (laughs) those, when, when, um, I've been around a lot of women that are perpetually on a diet, their whole life is always, well, I'm on a diet. My grandma's in her seventies and she's still like on, you know, one diet or another. Mm -hmm. Let's say what I'm not going to do when I'm in my (laughs) seventies, unless the doctor forces me to even then. If I make it till 70, I'm eating everything. I don't care. And I know like smoking too. And if I'm ever putting, if I'm ever putting my, (laughs) if I'm ever putting myself on a diet, I find myself wanting it more. You know, I find my uh, foods and other things. And Mm -hmm. I feel like my, my, the concentration actually shifts to what I'm depriving myself of rather yes. than actually um, being healthy. And so if I put my mind instead on, you know, say going out for a beautiful hike or something like that, right? I'm not going to be sitting there thinking about the food in the, the cupboard or whatever, and I'm actually getting exercise. <laughs> but, but the whole thing is enjoying life rather than, um, I guess, putting this, yourself in this point of, like, just depravity, right? Yes. No, not depravity. Depra- deprivation. Deprivation. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Much different. <laughs> the depravity dungeon or the deprivation dungeon. Two different kind of dungeons. <laughs> Two different kind of dungeons. Uh, I don't think I want to be uh, on either one of no. them, oh, but I I will be, I mean, I'd rather know. be in deprivation, I guess. <laughs> no! Choose your own the, dungeon. No, 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 no. The de- deprivation. The depravity dungeon is like it's it's like you have to pay fifty five dollars and then like in buy two drinks. Oh, that's the deprivation dungeon is you're just literally chained up and you starve to death because the government doesn't like your political views. I just I just I just thought of like (laughs) that's what I was going. I just thought depravity would be. Like the very worst thing anybody could ever do to a human being. In a oh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's, that's, yes. But of course, it's kind of like down here in, in Portland. It was a little bit too racy for me. I thought we were going to go to like a basic old timey burlesque cabaret. It was the Sinferno. Oh my God. But I mean, that's what happens, right? You're like, oh, Dante's Sinferno. Okay, that's fine. Like it, it's a tongue in cheek way of talking about depravity and sin. I have definitely now taken your tangent and tangent, <laughs> my it, tangent. your tangent. <laughs> 
Point being, <laughs> well, it's my own fault. I brought being, up no, depravity. Being able, <laughs> being able to stand aside from our impulses and feelings, and be able to select the ones that are going to serve us—that's the game. Okay, that's the game of that that one. Now, stepping aside from ourselves, once we've kind of figured out our rapacious hungers and desire to to be selfish or whatever, understanding all that and then trying to, to mediate it through mindfulness and meditation in a secular Buddhism, that then takes us to a question now of going outward. And, and the reason I left this one for later is because this one was the hardest for me. I think ultimately what's really funny is if you think about my, my career journey, I kind of was hoping to, to go from the, the religion department basically to the history department because it's the same like I'm, I'm a historian of ideas and religion so like i'll just go a different spot but what i didn't realize was ultimately in conservative america and this is what i was talking about with like the recent stuff in the lutheran church of missouri synod they're really worried about they don't care about any of this stuff they care about they care about race and and gender like that's what they that's what their real gods are you can see when those when those are confronted and um and all of it has to do with the domination system that is America. And I would say that in preparing, so I said, okay, I'm going to get into this beautiful space where all I'm going to do is just talk about history and not have to talk about theology with students like, and like have to answer as a shill for a denomination. I'm just going to be a historian and just talk about these ideas. And I realized that that was harder for people. It was easier for people to have like an open discussion about God than it is for us to have an open discussion about America. So for this, friends, you got to get yourself. Uh, It was at number seven. Number seven, Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. So this book is really important because um, there's this thing in history called like the great man theory. So when you, we, we talk about history, there's something called historiography. Historiography is how you write history. And I never realized how important the ideology behind this was. But if you see the world primarily being about Henry VIII and Martin Luther, right? Like, let's Mm -hmm. say the 16th century. And like these big characters. Um, that's, That's one way to read it. But there's another thing that's happening is there are human beings. There are peasants doing this and that. They're having relations. They're ha- and they're not recorded in the same way. And yet this is maybe a, a broader experience. So there's all these human beings having all this history, the social history of these places and times. But we ignore it. And I never realized until we, you know, I got to How- Howard Zinn that the telling of history is so, pro- so profoundly going to affect the way we teach children. Yeah. So the idea is, if you want to be great, you've got to have a big ego, a lot of ambition, become rich or powerful. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only thing that mattered. So, like, if we only select people that were thugs mm. to study, and we don't study the saints, and we don't study the, the people living no in different... No wonder society's so fucked up. Hell yeah. <laughs> now, then you go even deeper. And this is just a fact, friends. I don't, I don't know how to break this to you. You should read the book yourself, you know. Uh... Holy shit, America has done some nasty things. Like, yeah. the story mm-hmm. is, but it's not and about then America. And they teach you lies about it in yeah. school. But it's not about America, good or bad. It's about America is a family, and there's some assholes, and there's some freedom fighters within it throughout the whole story. Okay? So just, there's so many things that I could pull out of it, and this is a longer selection. But friends, hey, what do you got going on? Hopefully you're driving on the way to Yellowstone, if it still exists. <laughs> and uh, you're listening to us, uh, just kind of trying to kill some time. 
Sydney, would you uh, kind of get started here with this? Uh, okay. This is kind of about the prison system and, and how the whole system fits together. Okay, so nations are not communities and have never been. The history of any country presented as the history of a family conceals the fierce conflicts of interest, sometimes exploding, often repressed, between conquerors and conquered, masters and slaves, capitalists and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex. And in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is the job of thinking people, as Albert Camus suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. The prisons in the United States had long been an extreme reflection of the American system itself. The stark life differences between rich and poor, the racism, the use of victims against one another, the lack of resources of the underclass to speak out, the endless reforms that changed little. It had long been true, and prisoners knew this better than anyone, that the poorer you were, the more likely you were to end up in jail. This was not just because the poor committed more crimes. In fact, they did. In fact, they did. The rich did not have to commit crimes to get what they wanted. The laws were on their side. But when the rich did commit crimes, they often were not prosecuted. And if they were, they could get out on bail, hire clever lawyers, get better treatment from judges. Somehow, the jails ended up full of poor black people. The American system is the most ingenious system of control in world history. With a country so rich in natural resources, talent, and labor power, the system can afford to distribute just enough wealth to just enough people to limit discontent to a troublesome minority. It is a country so powerful, so big, so pleasing to so many of its citizens that it can afford to give freedom of dissent to the small number who are not pleased. There is no system of control with more openings, apertures, leeways, flexibilities, rewards for the chosen, winning tickets and lotteries. There is none that disperses its controls more complexly through the voting system, the work situation, the church, the family, the school, the mass media. None more successful in mollifying opposition with reforms, isolating people from one another, creating patriotic loyalty. How skillful to tax the middle class to pay for the relief of the poor, building resentment on top of humiliation. How adroit to bus poor black youngsters into poor white neighborhoods in a violent exchange of impoverished schools while the schools of the rich remain untouched and the wealth of the nation, doled out carefully where children need free milk, is drained for billion-dollar aircraft carriers. How ingenious to meet the demands of blacks and women for equality by giving them small special benefits and setting them in competition with everyone else for jobs made scarce by an irrational, wasteful system. How wise to turn the fear and anger of the majority towards a class of criminals bred by economic inequity faster than they can be put away. Deflecting attention from the huge thefts of natural resources carried out within the law by men in executive offices. Lots going on here. One thing, just as a historical note, this is why liberalism is a problem and uh, for emancipation. Now, when I say this, I would like to say, if you're asking, 
should we go with the conservative or the liberal angle on this question? We're going to probably go with the liberal angle if that's the language you're going to use, right? Like, should we, um, should we, um, uh, should we criminalize the teaching of sex education in public schools? No, right? Like we're, we're going to go take the liberal side. Should we care about poor people and their education? Yes. The problem with liberalism, if you go back to, if you go back to the New Deal, there's a lot of good stuff that uh, you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt was able to do. Um, some weird things that happened as well, but ultimately, what what FDR basically did was he stemmed a revolution. Mm. The, the people were tired of it. Like, so you got, uh, you know, the Emma Goldman's of the world um, and, and people are thinking, well, maybe, maybe the United States is going to sh- break off the shackles of the capitalist establishment. And so in many ways, liberalism said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to redistribute the wealth of the kind of the middle class, upper middle class people. This creates competition. And then it says, this is what was going on in here. Hey, women, you get to work now. That's great. We're liberal. You women get to work. Oh, good. What we're going to do is we're going to make sure that people of color also get to work in the slave wagery that all the other people have. So you think you've won when all of a sudden what you've won is the right to compete with other people in like the squid game of the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And what it also does is it fuels racism. There's nobody more racist than the people that are fighting for scraps. You know what I'm saying? Like you could say, and I'm talking about at at a personal level, deeply racist are the white collar pirates that are making the whole system go. But it relies on the animosity between different uh, groups in Latin America and between white and black in America. And so that you always, you don't realize that it's the son of the bitch at the, at the top of the corporation that's your problem, not the dude across the street who has a different kind of music than you. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So did you notice anything else from that? That was a long quote. Huh? It's fascinating because, yeah, the super rich, they don't end up, you know, they get out of their taxes or whatever. They find, they find whatever, you know, they find other ways that they can redistribute their money. Um, and yet, uh, or, you know, however that works, they don't, you get out of taxes, find the loopholes or whatever. Take it offshore. Yeah. Or whatever. And, um, and then, you know, but the middle class doesn't have the means to fully do that. Right. And so then they, they get the burden then of carrying, you know, the, the poor, the you poor know. are necessary for the capitalist system to work. Right. That's definite. You cannot have capitalism without the poor. Because if no one's afraid, and this is, the, this is something and, that and Howard Zinn brings out, like if people aren't afraid of starving to death, then what's the, like you can't get people to work and then for the, 15 and bucks then the, an hour. And then the middle class, like don't, they don't want to be poor, right? right. And no. so, the, you know, it's like it. And they think, they get tricked into thinking that they're, they're part of the rich crowd. Right. Yeah. So they're like fighting against taxes. Thinking, what they're really doing is they're defending these other people that are like absconding with all the right. natural resources. It's so crazy. I also thought it was interesting how they talked about like, you know, they do special benefits for minorities or women, yeah. and it's kind of a way to be like, oh, look, we are fixing it when it's still very much totally right. They dole out the up. little. Or they're like, oh, we can't afford to just feed all the starving people, but, you know, we're wasting billions of dollars building planes and well, shit. Well, not like only that. that, but just the. F- the food, the amount of food we throw away is enough to feed everybody. Oh, yeah. Now, um, the uh, the thing that also hit me really close to home, and this is why I proposed to your friends, especially if you are uh, 
still with us from a, uh, a kind of a Christian uh, church-related educational setting. I really feel bad about this because I know that like our careers were so you know tied up in this. I think it needs to be unplugged for moral reasons, and and I think uh, what I mean by this is I, I don't think every school needs to close, but it needs to it needs to um, cut the umbilical cord <laughs> to go back to John Day. Cut the um, to 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 sever ties with the control of a church body. You know, you can have a really nice hospital sponsored by the Methodists, the Catholics, or the Presbyterians, but they're doing a good service to the world in the name of their faith, but it's not controlled by it, mm-hmm. right? Like kind of like what, what Emily Joy was talking about, the nuts. Mm-hmm. We let the science do the <laughs> science. Do the science. I loved that. Yeah, that like, so right, great. like you can't, you just got to just let the science do its work. But, um, but there's, a, there's a big problem that happened. A lot of uh, conservative Lutherans, for instance, in the Lutheran church uh, we've come out of, is um, they were marching on behalf of integrating the schools. But meanwhile... While they were saying, yes, this is a very good liberal concept, we're going to integrate the schools. They were talking about the public schools. But this also served to increase people's interest in going to a private school. Oh, now, I don't want to, okay, I can't say I'm racist. I can't oppose segregation. But what I can do is send my kid to an expensive Lutheran school where there's a lot of German kids. And I'll make sure that my daughter marries a, a handsome German man. See, like that, that kind of connection between the founding, and I'm not just saying about my denomination, the, the Bible schools in many ways are, are made so that people don't send their daughters off to the state university. Where they're going to become, become more liberal. Yeah. Or marry somebody that doesn't believe what, what dad believes, yeah. right? So that was kind of part of it. So I think we just need to unplug it because, because of, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I say that very recently I'm noticing that one of the reasons that, that critical race theory becomes such a big thing within church-related schools is because it's a perfect marketing tool. If your kids are going to get indoctrinated into some Marxist race theory at the public schools, here, pay $15,000 for like an almost as good education. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But maybe smaller class size, so it's better in that regard. And there's a lot of, like, my teacher friends that are very, very well-meaning. But I'm talking about, in terms of a almost as good education, I mean, when you supplant science, yeah. that's not as good. <laughs> it's, it's not as educated. If you're, if you're closing off systems of thought, not as good. You yeah. know, it's, it's interesting. In um, one of these books, I don't know, maybe it was actually back in the Why Buddhism is True, but I heard recently... Uh, that basically when people, uh, people that have traveled and lived in multiple different areas and, and seen, you know, different societies and how they work, that they have a, a clearer concept of who they are than those that have only lived in one area uh, all their life because mm-hmm. they don't really know who they are as opposed to any, it's like the way, what, the way that things are done in their right. area are the only thing that they know of. And so they think that that's just how it's done and not that it's ever done in a different way. And I would say it would do us well to like really just research multiple different ways of people that have done education yeah. and see like what actually does Right, how did we become stuck in one system that doesn't work and doesn't teach you what you actually need to know? Right, and we can't get ourselves out of it, you know? It, it, and when you mentioned, you know, pull the plug, well, yeah. the reason, I mean, it's so scary to think of pull the plug because it's hard to imagine a different 
way to do it. And, and then how complicated it would be to untangle yourself yeah. from the current system. And then how do you, you know, start a new system? You know? This is really poignant for me because like I am, you know, this is true. I'm an educator. Yes. I'm a teacher. Yeah. I love doing it. That's what I do. The students, I, I, I have the connection. I'm really glad that even though I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay the bills with it, that I'm going to be able to enter into a space that's a totally different model of education. Yes. Where the kids are happy. Like that was to me, that was the only interview process. I'm saying if the kids are happy and the teachers are happy, I'm happy. And you saw the work that they were producing and, the producer, and you yeah, were amazed. But even know? apart from that, their happiness was like, it was like a right. nice thing. Because yeah, the first thing, when you walk into a school building... Sometimes you can feel like you're already in trouble and you didn't right. just walking into the building, yeah. right? No. Vibes are not good. But this is a difficult this is a difficult thing for me because there's a couple things going on. One is as a libertarian socialist, aka anarchist, I am not going to work. I would have done it in a sense, but I realized talking to enough people in the public schools, like old Mallinson is not the kind of cat that's gonna enter into teaching to a set curriculum that the state no, has often, laid out yeah, ain't often, happening and often to the test so that you know. hell no like this i'm moving into a space where no we're teaching to projects and we are not there, there's not a lot of homework i'm not great it's not that it's mentoring and like you know discovery but uh but i can't do that on the other hand i am nervous where i'm going into uh, is again an option to not be involved in the schools for everybody Right, like this is an alternative I school, and you you have to have some money. Generally, there are scholarships available. So one of the things I want to do is try to be able to find ways to raise money for people to be able to have access to a happy education instead right. of getting put into basically what because public schools today are like teaching you how to be compliant. It's yeah, teaching you teaching it's you prison. To shut off your brain and just get in line, be a cog in the machine. Right. Well, and it's I mean it makes perfect human beings to go out into a capitalist world and yep. serve your role in right. a capitalist society. No, thank you. But that's the problem. And on the flip side, so this is the problem of liberalism. What else do we do? I want every kid to be educated. I want them all to have health care. It's not enough to get some handouts, to get a little bit, you know, like, I don't want Obamacare. I want everybody to not be afraid yeah. that they're going to go bankrupt when they get sick. Yeah. That's all I want. Okay. Like we take care of each other, but I don't need it to be like this liberal, like kind of, Oh, discounted, you know, like the, no, the, we prioritize lives. If you have enough money, you can get the best. I mean, think of like, even say what Trump got, um, COVID. Yeah. And he fared fine. just fine. Right. But he had every single bit of whatever possible medication and doctors yeah. and everything available to them. Right? Yeah, they like pumped him full of like hormones, steroids. All sorts of stuff. I don't, yeah. yeah. You know who didn't have that? Our old friend, uh, the late Y. John Y. From, uh, right. from Sudan, working extra shifts at the airport. Yeah. And now he's no he not here. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, and that's not the only, I mean, you know, that's not the only thing that's going on, but it's certainly, it's certainly a big but we, we prioritize lives based on how much money you have because and then you have access would. to, yeah. Of course we would, right? We don't, yeah. And, and yeah, and it's, just, it's to me, that's just so sad. Homestretch, number eight, Alan Watts' autobiographical account, In My Own Way, which is beautiful because, of course, the way is the Tao. Getting in the way of the way is what we're always trying to, like, play with. Getting out of our way so we can get to the way 
in my own way. Here's his ego. So he's trying to write about losing your ego and he's doing it as an autobiography. Uh, that's pretty funny. Yes. The reason I, I, I want to turn people onto this is because here's a dude who is an Anglican priest who ends up having like kind of hippie, you know, I don't know, they get stoned and they're like having conversations about world religions uh, at the, uh, you know, the Episcopal church where he's at, you know, mm -hmm. he couldn't really stick with that forever. Cause even the Episcopal church has some standards, you know? Um, but what I like about Alan Watts, and you go, oh, Mallinson's throwing us uh, another, another weird guru. It's going to get weirder in a second. Hold on. But um, the thing about Alan, Alan Watts is he's not a guru. He never advocated that. You've, you've got some people that are interesting, like Ram Dass. I really love a lot of what Ram Dass does, but I don't listen to a lot of Ram Dass anymore because I just can't get over the fact that he thought that you had to have a, a guru. guru. Yeah. And his particular guru was accused of sexual inappropriate behavior. And the inability to see that, I think, is very problematic. And it's also unnecessary. Well, at least it was unnecessary for most people. Alan Watts doesn't go that route. And Alan Watts doesn't have disciples. Mm -hmm. Like, that to me is a really good sign. And I didn't, it, was in, it wasn't until I read his uh, audio, autobiography um, that I realized something that this is, this is exactly how he wanted it. So there's, I forget the name of the guy, but there was a, there was a, a Zen painter who painted the th three lines from the Tao Te Ching. It's just one line, two lines, and then three lines. And it just means one, two, three. There was mm -hmm. the one, there's the two, okay. and then there's the three. And then, of course, then there's the 10,000 things. But there's this beautiful thing. It was just these lines, one, two, and three. And Alan Watts you know, says, I'm going to hang this up on my wall. And he says, this guy, I am so, I am so honored to know this Zen artist. Like, I know this Zen artist, and it's, his art is on my wall. And he points to it, and he says, thank you so much. Like, you're a great artist. And, and he, he was reflecting on how, like, nobody knows who this guy is anymore. Mm -hmm. And he realized, oh, that's exactly what he wanted because he said, look, there's, I love this painting. Uh, you know, I've, I love this calligraphy that I've got on the wall. And uh, the Zen master said something like, um, yeah, I hope that you start to not notice that anymore. Like, I hope that you ignore it. Like, you're, you're too clingy to it. Hmm. And he realized that that was the thing, that there was some experience that, that the Zen master wanted to communicate, but trying to preserve it and like make it like a monument, like the Washington Monument to ego and to the phallus um, is not really the right way of thinking. That's well, another idol. And so Alan Watts is kind of like, his thought is just diffused. You can get it on the internet, you know. Nobody really owns it. His son's curating some stuff. Um, but, uh, but the main reason I think it's important is not only that you, you not need your guru, but there's some really interesting comments about religion and Christianity uh, that, that Alan Watts reflects on in this book that he doesn't reflect on elsewhere. And the main thing is just that talkativeness, right? Like, we, like whatever convinced us that some deity in the sky needs us to go to a, a designated building and tell him how great he is and then talk to ourselves about how great he is for a little while mm -hmm. and then be in fear and then go home, yeah. you know, be yeah. comforted that that big beast, you know, like, so, but there's a lot of talk and there's not a lot of contemplation and experience. So anyway, I think that's a really helpful one. <laughs> I will say it's that a, it goes I, along. I don't a good know clip. maybe, maybe not, in, not everybody would find comfort in this, but, uh, recently I was listening to one of, um, Alan Watts's talks and, uh, there's a woman who is asking, about uh, death and what happens when you die. And he said, 
She goes, yeah. She goes, what's what's gonna happen? Like, you know, what what, what happens when I die? What's gonna happen to me? Am I yeah. gonna survive it? And he mm-hmm. says, well, most definitely, the part of you that is worried about <laughs> that will no longer exist. Yeah. And so, anyway, that was. Yeah. And was, then what remains is it, your eternal self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyway, a very very helpful guy. Um, if nothing else, uh, some people say, oh, he's just a popularizer of Eastern religions. What else are we gonna do? What else we got to do? Like, I need, like, somebody to come translate this stuff for us. And I really do believe that Alan Watts really understood these things. And it's precisely because he was going to be able to convey them to a popular audience that it was useful. I don't need any more footnotes. Yeah. You know, I, I need somebody to really, really get well, it. Well, and he is just, it just, I mean, his ability to just speak off the cuff. Like, it's yeah. just amazing. Yeah. And he doesn't and care about his ego or he's not doing it for attention. Yeah. Right. A hundred percent. He was just doing it to like be able to afford yeah. like his, his lifestyle. And he's, <laughs> he just, and he's just literally answering people's questions mm-hmm. the way that as best as he can seize it. Right. And Dude without being cool. like, I know everything. Yeah. This is right. the only way. So, you yeah. know. Right. Now, number nine. Uh, the essential roomie. Now, the real answer is just get yourself some roomie. There is a lot of debate about um, about who gets to translate it. So I want to make a mention of that. I really enjoyed a copy that Augie uh, gave me of uh, Coleman Barks' The Essential Roomies. So that's the one I kind of want to like just kind of recommend because I know it's accessible and I've read it. Uh, there are new translations, other translations. Um, the real question is who is allowed to translate them? And there are a lot of people saying, ah, there's these Western people that are going to extract from Rumi some kind of new age stuff mm. and they're going to leave the Islam. And guess what? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I want Alan Watts and Richard Rohr to do with, with Christianity. And, and like, ex- like let's extract the stuff that we can enjoy. The human experience has been going on for thousands and thousands of years with this religious conversation. What did we learn? And what, what yeah, what, what is, what can we marry condo? What, what is true? What rings true? Right. So and there's that. Things should fall away. There is this element of cultural appropriation, but I, I still am sticking with this idea that this, this is not helpful where they're like, no, only people with this lineage can teach Zen. Only people with this lineage can teach yoga. No. I don't even think you need to be certified to do yoga. It's helpful. But this idea that there's a controlling body, it's just helpful so that I know if I'm getting something quality or not. But you don't, there's no ordaining. Right. Like, that's stupid. Whether it's church or whether it's your yoga teacher, like there's no ordaining. You either have it or you don't. <laughs> okay. Right. That's a side issue. But um, it reminds me of a friend of mine who lives in Iran. And we were kind of talking about this, that we both love Rumi, but we face different problems. So the problem that I have is I have a sanitized Rumi that isn't Muslim. And he has a sanitized Rumi that doesn't drink wine infused with cannabis oil. Okay, because what Rumi was doing was everything he was not supposed to do. This is why I need you friends to just get and, yourself some Rumi. And Rumi got away with it. Like he got away with <laughs> it. What's funny is, is that How the so hell did many he get away people with love loved Rumi. Like no, everyone loves Rumi. They give right. him a pass. Right, he gets a pass. He's on a everything. fun guy. He's like drink the wine and dance. Mm. But here's the funny thing. Strict interpretations of the Hadith and the, the Quran and, and in Islam in general is you no music. 
and he like starts the, this like kind of Sufi movement where they're like, they're playing the oboe type instrument and they're just dancing. <laughs> wait, 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 there's not supposed to be any dancing. So he dancing and he says, oh yeah, I'm a Muslim and I'm going to dance. Like you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You're not supposed to have music. You're not supposed to dance. And, and like he dances on the corpse of his religion. Now, I don't, if that's saying that too hard now, you, if, you, if you're a Muslim, you're like, no, it's, he's, he's our guy. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Did Your guy went into the part of his city where the Jews and the Christians were because the Jews and the Christians had booze. Mm. Good or bad for you. But what they put in the booze was funky. They were not sure exactly what they put in the booze. But we're pretty sure that, you know, he talks about that. He like, uh, the girls like dancing and laughing because they're, they're giddy on weed. And, and he says, uh, take a sip, close your eyes and open your third eye. Okay, that's some deep shit. I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah, I like now, that. Now, I don't know my Farsi. I've tried to do some Farsi, <laughs> and it just, just breaks language. me. It breaks it me every so time. It sounds so beautiful, oh, though. I love when sounds so beautiful, speak Farsi. But just so hard. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but so Rumi, so but this is why I really think Rumi is important for you, dear listener. If you're coming out of a fundamentalist background, can you dance on the corpse of your religion and be like the snake that shed its skin and be actually the same thing, but the real thing? Can you say, I'm going to shed Christianity and be the true Christian? Mm. Stacy and I, at least we can say, I'll leave Sydney to be Sydney. But in this one sense, because we've been so steeped in it as like the, the church parents. We are evangelicals the way Rumi was a, was a Muslim. Mm. We sense. are Germans the way Bonhoeffer was a German. You can't escape it. Mm. That's the friggin' brain space that's the mental landscape this is the toolbox this yeah. is the symbolism the myths that we're that we're well, dealing the foundation, with foundation right rumi would have been rumi no matter what religion he was in mm -hmm. he was a friggin mystic mm -hmm. so you just got to find the mystics in each of these traditions you start to see this thread that's weaving you know like there's not a lot different between rumi and richard Rohr. Mm. you know with the exception that rumi was a lover. He was not a monk. <laughs> and also interesting thing about Rumi is Rumi's relationship with Shams in that he believed that there was this like intimate male relationship, this very tender, very almost effeminate, what we would see in some like Western contexts as effeminate uh, love, tenderness, handholding, and I think spirituality. Rumi and Shams had some fun. There was probably something there. And if they, did, <laughs> and if they didn't, it's because they were like, just so blasted out of their minds on the spirit, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, in any case, Stacey, would you just read just a couple quotes so that the good listener can kind of catch a little bit of the, of the dance of Rumi? This is, uh, again, from that uh, Coleman book. It's titled A Given. The drum we hear inside us now, we may not hear tomorrow. We have such fear of what comes next, death. These loves are like pieces of cotton. Throw them in the fire. Death will be a meeting like that flaring up, a presence you have always wanted to be with. This body and this universe keep us from being free. Those of you decorating yourselves so beautifully, do you think they won't be torn down? The eventual demolishing of prisons is a given. Fire change, disaster change. You can trust that those will come around to you. There's another one, how finite minds most want to be. You are the living marrow, the rest is hay, and dead grass does not nourish a human being. When you are not here, this desire we feel has no traveling companion. When the sun is gone, the soul's clarity fades. There is nothing but idiocy and mistakes. 
We are half dead, inanimate, exhausted. The way finite minds most want to be is an ocean with a soul swimming in it. No one can describe that. These words do not touch you. Metaphors mentioning the moon have no effect on the moon. My soul, you are a master, a Moses, a Jesus. Why do I stay blind in your presence? You are Joseph at the bottom of his well. Constantly working, but you do not get paid, because what you do seems trivial, like play. Now silence. Unless these words fill with nourishment from the unseen, they will stay empty. And why would I serve my friends bowls with no food in them? Without demolishing religious schools, madrasas, and minarets, and without abandoning the beliefs and ideas of the medieval age, restriction in thoughts and pains and conscience will not end. Without understanding that unbelief is a kind of religion, and that conservative religious belief a kind of disbelief, and without showing tolerance to opposite ideas, one cannot succeed. Those who look for the truth will accomplish the mission. So in any case, whether or not you, you want to like jump in with both feet on the, uh, on the roomy train, it's nice to see somebody playing with the, the religion of their childhood in a way that is healing and honoring to the value of what they got from it, you know. Um, but also, dang good poet. <laughs> the, really good poet. Why would you serve bowls of food or uh, bowls without food in it, you know, or yeah. whatever, like... Just everything he said. Yeah. It's it's a, yeah. I mean, I remember, I yeah, I, I, somebody once said, I think it was Professor Rosenblatt when I was in school, he said, like, the church is a teat filled with sand. <laughs> mm. I like that. The one. church is a teat filled, like, you're like. You're looking uh, and you want that nourishment. But it's just sand in your mouth. The church is kind of, you know, the, the church is kind of like that, you know, there was an experiment with the poor monkeys where they gave the monkey, like, a fake mom. Oh, mm. Yeah, that was sad. That's Mother Church. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? They're like, no, you can't have actually nurturing. You can't actually have the mother, capital M. And you know, you mother church. You know, uh, who's run by dad? Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry. Well, I was saying, like, even that that idea. I was thinking, you know, just imagining sand in my mouth. You know, like when sand gets in your mouth. For any of you that have been to the beach or whatever, it's like really hard to get that sand out. And it's, yeah. like, you know, it's like, ugh, it's like, and it's not only not nourishing you, it's it's. Damaging you, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's dang hard to get it all out. <laughs> now, thanks, ladies, for sticking with me for this long because I only got one more, and I want to let it breathe for a second because it's the most risky of all of these for giving to somebody who's saying I'm coming out of like weird religious land because it's a weird religious book and it's called uh, Becoming Kuan Yin: The Evolution of Compassion by Stephen Levine. Okay, now um, this book. Okay, we we got this after you know we 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 were just profoundly affected by the the devotion to Guanyin when we went to China. And we went to we went and observed what was going on with the there was a temple yep. there. And so I kind of looked into it, and so I picked up this book. This book is like there's there's historical books about the development of Guanyin, <clears throat> Guanyin, um, but. But uh, this one is kind of, like, helpful. It's not historical. It's not even real, <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, in a weird way. But it's the, I think it's the solution to everything that comes from one to nine. 
right? Like, let me go with this for a second. When I sit in meditation, I feel like everything is crumbling around me and society and the ecosystem. That's a scary feeling. Yeah. But it's also a space for incredible possibility because, because if you can't shed your ego by your own effort, the universe can do it for you. Yeah. If you can't get rid of your addiction to the capitalist system, the capitalist system can just self-destruct. That's what uh, the Tao Te Ching would say. That's exactly what the Tao Te Ching would say. And then what? We've got too much yang, so we could go yin. But here's the thing about Guanyin, all right? So Guanyin is owned by no religion, really. There's a Taoist element. It, it, Guanyin, I believe, is influenced by actually Nestorian missionaries um, bringing Mother Mary as like this... Well, here, here, here's what I think is going on. Mother Mary is brought in the, about the 8th century to China by Nestorian Christian missionaries. And um, when people see this, this is really kind of powerful because even though you have female deities in Chinese religion prior to this, um, most of them are uh, kind of angry. They're not like tender. Mm -hmm. And Mary is tender. Mm -hmm. So Mary was like a very attractive archetype, uh, like a, a different way of approaching mother deity. Okay, like the, the, the divine feminine, if you will. Now, along comes this, this very important deity from the east, from India, Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is an effeminate male deity who is the god of compassion. And then transitions to being female by the time Avalokiteshvara gets to the east and becomes Guanyin, or in Japan, Kanon. And this is the goddess of compassion. So let's just say, if you've come through this journey with us, we're saying like, Mountain, you're trying to get us to be polytheists? Kind of, in this one sense. Like, what is the importance of these gods and goddesses in mythology? They're archetypes. They're ways of us processing themes. Who do I want to be? What is my internal image for the, like, the right way to be. And I think the right way to be is the way of Guanyin, is the union of masculine and feminine. Not to be uh, just purely passive, but to be kind of a defense. Um, mama's not letting this happen anymore. Right. Mama's going to lay down some boundaries. Mm -hmm. So there's like a masculine and feminine. There's a strength and a tenderness. Sorry, I was about to sneeze. <laughs> um, that's one of the things when we've seen uh, pictures or statues of Guanyin. Often there's this um, there's this confidence there, and almost it's it's like s stay back from those I'm protecting. It's like this, um, you know, like it, it can almost. If you you know if you look you might think huh it's almost a little harsh right sometimes mm -hmm. and then yet you realize it's not a harshness of like you want you want to be in the protection of Guanyin yes <laughs> you know and you want her to be a little bit mad for you yeah 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 and so it's that perfect thing that I mean if 
it's only scary if you're somebody she needs to be mad at. Right. <laughs> kind of exactly. like Jesus, right? Like kind of right. like Jesus. She's powerful. <laughs> yes. If and you're if you're a dominator, you better watch out. Jesus right. is coming to turn over your tables. Yes. And um and the other thing too is Guanyin does not want to be worshipped. No. She never That was not interested. Not asking for people she, to yeah, she be listens. devoted. She cares about she, helping people, not ego right. of being some kind of She doesn't know. want devoted followers mm-hmm. say doesn't need that. It's just it's about um yeah, compassion. She prefers not to have like followers in yeah. that sense. No, just, you know. Be the same. Be yeah. be this. Be compassion to others. Now, if I haven't told the story on the show, let me make sure I give you the short version because it's really beautiful. And I, I do want you to think about this. So the story is there's various versions of it and I'm going to botch it, but there's this Chinese gal named Miao Shan. She's a princess. Now I want you to understand that she becomes this Miao Shan is going to become the embodiment of Avalokiteshvara, who by the way, also is the Dalai Lama is supposed to be the incarnation of the same deity, Avalokiteshvara. Mm. Interesting. But, um, but anyway, so she is, um, uh, she's like she's like Jesus. Like it's the same story. It's like it's like she's like Jesus and Mary put together. Mm-hmm. For the sake of Christian audience, just go with me on this. So the dad wants her to marry some gross guy. He's wealthy. Yeah, for the political side of it, and she goes like, "No, no, I'm not going to do this. I'll be a I'll be a nun." I'm going to be a nun. So the dad doesn't like this. It's kind of like the same thing with Francis of Assisi. Dad doesn't like this. Uh, feel free to fill in any pieces of this. But uh, the dad doesn't like this. And um, sh- and so says to the to the head nun, you know, of the convent, like make it so that she has to have a really bad experience. So that she won't want to stay. And what this means is she has to deal with kids that are child abuse victims, orphans, people who've had severe trauma. Dying old people. And this is spiritually transformative for her. And she goes, oh, this is exactly where I need to be. Yeah. Just exactly where I need to be. And this is why we gave this book to uh, to Jessa, my sister-in-law, who's a neonatal nurse. Yay, Jessa. She, well, uh, she um, is a respiratory therapist. Yeah. She saves for, babies' lives. Yeah, for in the, um, yeah, the NICU, yeah. But having to kind of deal with that, though, the suffering of children is a it's really painful. hard thing if Especially you care. Especially when that's your introduction into this world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's heavy. And so Guanyin is depicted with these children around her, you know, always. And in any case, so there's various versions of the story, but ultimately because she doesn't obey her dad, you'll have to read the whole book for the, the fun details. Uh, she gets executed and she goes to hell and she puts out the flames of hell with her tears. <laughs> I love that part. Because she says, even in hell, she says, oh, these are like people, these are these monsters that have become monsters through their traumas. Yeah. Right? So it's like trauma-informed deity. Thank you. <laughs> Been waiting for you, kids. She's the pain. She's not just like, sing to me and don't do what you want. If you're not noticing, friends, we're saying that there's actually, like, like Carl Gustav Jung would say the same thing. Don't, you don't want to get rid of religious language because it's very helpful for us to, some, for some of us at least, very helpful for us to navigate. This is what Augie always said. I mean, if you go back to a show we did a while back on the, the yeah, the Bojack Horseman thing, um, the, the thing was, he was saying, like, we need a new myth. We need new mythology making in this world because we are so lost and fragmented and the old myths aren't working. And all of it's, you know, sexist and bigoted. Yeah. So it just needs to be 
recreated. Yeah, but we need one. You can't have no myth, right? Like, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be superstitious. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be uh, literalistic, right? Like, I can talk about Guanyin as a concept, and be and and really the and this is the whole point of the book. Guanyin isn't to be worshipped; she's to be embodied, and it's basically a, for me. It's just another way of saying. To be the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be the body of Christ, is to take the universal Christ that R- Richard Rohr talks about and be that. Yeah. When I see suffering, when I'm suffering, to just cry, to behold the cross and see, you know, I liked what Rumi even said. Be a witness to, to the suffering, um, you know, and, and come alongside those that are suffering. Yeah. One of the most Jesus-like things that Rumi said in the quotes that we were looking at is, that idea that God is found at the bottom of the well with Jacob yeah. or uh, uh, Joseph. So Joseph has been thrown to the bottom of a well, sold into slavery. And the fact is like what I'm feeling right now is not hopelessness, but is the gravity almost like it's hopeless. If you're asking, can I prop it up? Like, I feel like I'm in a building that's about to crumble mm-hmm. and I can either become an eternal being that's going to rise out of the ashes or I can stay down in the ashes but I can't keep the building up. I can't keep the church up. I can't keep the state up. I can't keep people, uh, I can't like prop everything up. And I don't know why I have this kind of, maybe because I'm the oldest of eight kids and I'm always stressing out about holding. I mean, Sydney and I have this same kind of thing where like we were kind of First children, yeah, kind of used to being self-sufficient, but also kind of carrying with us the burden of responsibility of caring for the other siblings because of the lack of, you know, parenting. Yeah. And so, and so like that burden. Well, and I would, and I would also say, um, for in your own family, um, I mean, your brothers took on a huge portion. My brother, I abandoned it at at some point. When I'm talking about 18, I'm not claiming like I did it all. I'm like, I'm claiming I bailed on it. Well, and largely it was the best gift you thought you could do was to become self-sufficient. That's right. I realized like, yeah, like I had to. And at some point you might need to help raise some of your sisters or, you know, the youngest. That's right. Hey, sorry kids. Uh, got a, I'm a teacher now. <laughs> but you're always welcome to kind of crash out on the, uh, the lawn here. Anyway, uh, in the, the lawn. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm saying like you know, camp out. Portland, they don't care. Well, and I course. think if we put the tents in, I think if we put the tents in our. I don't think anybody would ever stop us. <laughs> oh no. Hey pops, if you're listening, let's get that let's get that bell tent back up here to get it up. We'll get it off the property in San Diego. We'll move That'd it up be here. fantastic. Putting out the tears of hell, though. Like yeah. that's the religious impulse. Like, so what I'm saying, do we need, we need in a certain sense, if we need more feminine, we need more yin. That's definitely the solution for our age, but also we need the re, re, reintegration of both for all of us. All of it. Yeah. Well, and I think even the yin part, even though that's seen as like being soft and feminine, there is like a strength and power to that. Like that's kind like of a the mama hole. bear type yeah. spirit or, you know. Yeah. It would be inappropriate to say that yin isn't powerful. Yeah. The whole chapter there. So, Sydney, would you just uh, kind of like kind of close this out with just a short chapter here from Becoming Guanyin, just to kind of give you a sense of how this book kind of clips along? Okay, so chapter 19, Reflection on the Mother of Mercy. Don't be embarrassed by your sorrow. Let it sink into your heart and be swaddled in mercy. Loving kindness flows through the grief point directly into the heart. The body fills with warmth. Buddha said, 
You could look the whole world over and never find anyone more deserving of love than yourself. Mercy changes the game. Our sorrow believes we deserve to suffer. Have mercy on the stranger in you. Let the stranger be reborn in a merciful consciousness. How often might we consider death before we permit ourselves the life of the heart? Let her loving kindness open the fist around your heart. The mother of mercy prays to free us from our image of the perfection to which so much suffering clings. When in the shadowy mind, we imagine ourselves imperfectly, praying to be freed by enlightenment, she refines our prayers. Putting her arms around us, she bids us put our head on her shoulder, whispering, don't you know, with all your fear and anger, all you are fit for is love. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings be at peace. May all beings be happy and free. That, if I have a religion, that's my religion. Yeah. That's what I mean. May, the bodhisattva, the idea of saying, I am not satisfied with heaven so long as there's anybody in hell. Yeah. I am not satisfied with enlightenment so long as other people are stuck in delusion. And I also don't need to fix it all. Like, you, we don't need to fix it you all. You can't. We can't fix it all. But we can be like this for one another. Even if an asteroid's coming, friends. <laughs> Even if an asteroid's coming, we can still do this. We can still sit in, in, in a certain kind of joy uh, in the love that we've shared together and the love that we have in the middle of each day, the possibility, and even the love that takes the form of deep, deep weeping with other people, weeping with those who weep. But the only way we're going to do this isn't, and this is why I think I like the, the Becoming Guanyin, because sometimes I think we get so caught up in ideas about spirituality and religion that there is an ancient value into personifying those ideas and imagining this Guanyin, you know, like being this mother of mercy that's comforting you. That's like a helpful thing to visualize. That said, I think it was spooked. Was it spooked? I think there was an episode spooked? of spooked where somebody was like possessed and then like the picture of Guanyin, like totally like <laughs> friggin' healed everything. It was mm. kind of weird. I don't know where I that's need going. to watch that again. Yeah. No, this is the, this is the, uh, this is the podcast. Oh. Spooked, which is like all those, like all those stories. Um, anyway. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a, there, there's one there where like somebody is just like unable to get through like this kind of seeming demon possession, you know, and then like the Guan Yin thing comes along. Hmm. Um, I'm only saying that because I'm also not going to say there's no reality to this. Like I think the devil's real. Hmm. I think God's real. Okay. But the language we use is insufficient. So if you ever hear us bouncing back and forth, like I don't think the devil that I grew up with is real at all. Right. Um, but there is Molech, there's a system that is, is impersonal. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what we were talking about. It's like Star Wars. God definitely exists. The only, th the only interesting religious question is whether God knows God exists <laughs> or God is the, is like the collective consciousness of all the brains. Like all, we, our brain is God's brain. I mean, that's a possibility, but there is like some high, like the highest consciousness is the highest consciousness. We'll call it God. And there is a force whether we call it evolution or Mara or the devil that is counteracting this, like it's a reality. There is some pain in the world and there's some people that are dealing it. Mm 
And, you know, maybe a few years ago I would have been like a little slap happy, like, oh, you know, it's like we're Dow surfers, peace and love. Like, no, like there is a way in, in like Eastern, um, in some of the esoteric traditions of Buddhism where you're actually chanting down the devil. Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm saying, well, like, having a, a healthy anger towards what you should. You yeah. know, you, know, you got to call it something. And it's, it's interesting because I would say one of the things that I've noticed in my own life is um, I've always, so there's always been, you know, a sense of, um, you know, some suffering and sadness, right? Not fully knowing even how to like put my finger on it, you know? Yeah. Um, Augie's death has given me not only more pain, but the ability to put my finger on something to say, like, all of that feeling, it, it, it like, it now for sure has a, a home worthy of it being there, if you, yeah. if that makes sense. I mean, the sorrow's always there, and now you can, like, put you a can thing, name it. I can name it. Yeah. Um, but I, and I feel like I did not know the depths of sorrow. So there's a difference. There's a huge yeah. difference. I am saying that... It's it's weird because, um, you know, you always just sort of like I, I felt like, you know, there's some of these things. But maybe, you know, my life hasn't been hard enough to yeah. warrant right. um, some of the some of the yeah. Yeah, sorrows that I felt or, you know. Yeah. I, oh, yes, yes, yes. I changed when you're personally faced with a deep tragedy. Right. Now you're allowed to feel those feelings. Right. Because um, up until that point, you know, your life was relatively fortunate. Yeah. Right. I had parents that, you know, raised me. I had a home yeah. over my, you know, I and had a roof over my head. A, I was a fed, you know. Exceptionally difficult situation, like just demographically that most people don't deal with yeah. that, you know, at least. Yeah. And so it's just, it's just interesting because I, I feel like no matter, I don't know, no matter how privileged your life might be, um, there is still, I think, within us, there is that suffering and that sorrow often that whether we are um, able to admit it or not. And then what do we do with that? And yeah. I think that that also is um, a huge reason why um, it's hard to be at peace. Because also things are like, you're told like, well, I mean, you have it, you have it so good. You know, you have it so good in America or whatever, just being right. born here. But there's there is so much suffering and sorrow around us and that, that does affect us whether we're able to see it or admit it or not. And then what do we do with it? And what I like about with what we were saying with Guanyin and stuff is just that having the, the compassion, compassion yes. for ourselves, for even, you know, feeling that, feeling that, um, compassion for an, an, a neighbor and anything that they're going through, I think it's easy for us to just sort of, when you see somebody suffering somehow, just say, oh, well, it's their own fault, right? They they created that situation or they put themselves in that situation. And I don't know. I, I think that being able to acknowledge that we all suffer in some way, maybe to varying levels of, you know, degree. Um, but again, finding something that we can do with that and and i i refuse to allow it to turn me into a fountain of hate yeah um and instead i want to combat that with having compassion and and, and having love um, and then that when i'm in that spirit that's when i'm finding a deeper peace upon peace but sometimes i get you 
Special way, and I. 